Welcome to Game Changers, the show that's about playing by your own rules when it comes to your career. Join us as we speak with people who have taken the road less traveled and found their niche. I'm your host, Seth Robinson. This season, we're taking some time out to reconnect, exploring the ways our Game Changers are forming connections in the world by creating new communities, spaces, and technologies. And I think understanding how a person uses space also helps you later on when you're specifying and designing a space for someone to live in for a long time. Because if you look at staircases from old buildings, you can see how they're sunken in in the centre and it shows you where the most popular space to walk is. Today we're speaking with Jeanette Lee, an architect, teacher and storyteller whose practice pushes the boundaries of imagination into life-size spaces, miniatures and online. My name's Jeanette and I'm an associate architect at Peter Ryan Architects and I'm also a bit of a hobbyist as in I love to build miniature models which is a little hobby that's taken me all over the world and a crazy cat lady. (laughs) It's very much a portfolio career and lifestyle you have there which is one of the reasons we wanted to chat today which is fantastic. Yes, yes. A bit bit of a different path than normal um, after graduation I think. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about that? How is it you kind of got from graduation point A to this Mm. point B where you're balancing these different projects? So um, after I graduated, I started a business with a a good friend of mine who had come back from the UK. That business is still running, but I'm not the director there anymore because I decided to take other hobbies into account. But um, it was an excellent experience. So architecture is a little strange in that I think you need five years of education, so the undergraduate and the master's, and then a minimum of two years before you can hit the registration exam. And then what I did after university was that we started taking on small projects, which we did in collaboration with other architecture firms too, so that we could get our hours up to do the registration. And those small projects started out as little fit outs and everything that we'd actually won from Instagram (laughs) at the time. And um, it was for Adriano Zumbo for his cake stores back when he was on MasterChef and stuff like that, which was pretty fun. And then um, after that, you know, the Instagram marketing worked pretty well and we were invited to do a couple of artworks for YouTube and, and Google in Singapore. Oh yeah. And Facebook as well. And we did that in collaboration with Red Hong Yi. And Doing those projects actually really built up my network in terms of meeting new people and doing other things. And from the from that, the people I met there, um, they reached out to me and we ended up doing a few like advertising campaigns. One of my hobbies is to build little dollhouses. <laughs> and um, I'd post those casually on my, my LinkedIn and my Facebook and everything. And Every now and again, someone would contact me and this um, this advertising agency contacted me and we built a small miniature kitchen where we renovated everything on camera. And then I think it was filmed in San Francisco. So they, f- um, they flew us over and it was a really well-received ad campaign. And I think they showed it during the the NBA playoffs. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> as the, yeah, as, as the launch. Um, so that was that. And during all of these things, um, I also was doing my proper architecture career and um, I'm still doing that now. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
<laughs> so can you tell me a little bit more perhaps about your kind of professional architecture practice? Because I suppose that's really what's at the core of all these projects you work on. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think what's really fantastic about architectural education is that it teaches you design thinking as in solving problems kind of left field like you look at the entire picture and then you can see how you can solve it so I'm currently a associate architect at a small firm in South Yarra we do uh, large-scale office buildings so it's very 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 commercial compared to this fun small stuff that I do but um, all of it is uh, a basis of the education that I got and the contacts that I made during university. Jeanette has also taken her love of architecture and making models and used it to launch Tiny Texture, an Instagram page that showcases her small-scale work. We did call it Tiny Texture, being like, you know, tiny architecture. <laughs> and it was like model-making skills that you pick up in the undergraduate. So. I think around the second year of university, the architecture faculty bought a laser cutter. It was like the first one at the time. And that's probably just showing my age because I think all of the students now <laughs> come in and it's, they have like four or five um, laser cutters there. And we use like a computer program to model things up and then we cut everything in flat sheets. And the thing with the laser cutter is that you're able to cut a lot of things in detail and pretty fast. The business that I had after university, we actually had a laser cutter in-house and I think, yeah, we used that to fabricate everything. It also meant that we could do things very quickly for clients as well. And, you know, there's, there is something about having like a tactile model to show people. I mean, that's one thing. <laughs> it's less, it's a bit different after last year where everything's more digital and we have to change again. But um, I find that a lot of clients have struggle with like the digital representation sometimes and something tactile that they can see and, you know, point to, you know, in front of them has been very, very handy. You've touched on something there that I think is really interesting and is incredibly timely, is that, you know, we think of architecture predominantly as a spatial art form. It's something where you're used to walking into a place and experiencing it, or as you said, seeing that model. But I suppose the last year has created some real challenges in that space. And you yourself have kind of created a practice that combines those two things really nicely. Like I imagine in a lot of ways with your work in advertising and tiny texture and social media, mm -hmm. you're kind of ahead of the curve in terms of representing things virtually. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, um, you also have to get the clients to engage in that type of thing as well. So with our, um, with the more commercial work at Peter Ryan, it's difficult to have the commerciality to have someone sit there and build that model the entire time. So I think with COVID and everything, having to lock down and then rethinking how you present a project so that people can understand has been a little bit different. So we've been using programs like Enscape, which do live modeling. With, with using Enscape, we can basically model the entire world around the building and that's very handy when you're, you know, having a Zoom meeting with 
don't know, 15 stakeholders <laughs> and they're all staring at the screen and then what you can do is you can take them through the building. They ask to look at something and then you can show it to them. But the problem with that is that there's a lot of work up front to make sure the model's detailed enough to do a tool like that. But we found that after switching to this type of representation, it's been much, much easier for clients to understand the design intent of what we're doing. And with an architectural model, there's a lot of benefits to it in that, you know, there's something tactile there. But in order to get it to the level where it looks like a room, there's a lot of painting and a lot of detail, and that's like another art form by itself. And at school, they kind of teach you to do like a white massing model that requires a lot of imagination to fill in the lines and that imagination is fine sometimes like early on in the project because if for the clients it makes them feel like they're more involved and they can look at the model and talk to you about what they want but showing a white box on a screen over zoom <laughs> is not not the best way to to get your ideas across because you don't have that ability to read expressions as much to show to you know to understand when someone's a little bit lost it's more like a game rendering nowadays where you have people and you've got the trees flowing and the waters the waters flowing as well in the image and it was a big learning curve for our office but highly beneficial in terms of 2020 you know you've mentioned clients a few times in there Mm -hmm. what is the sort of percentage breakdown of your day job if you will you know do you spend how much time working with clients as opposed to designing and making and that sort of thing I think now I'm a little bit more progressed with my career. I probably spend a lot more time with clients and I have a team, a very, very good team that works under me and they basically translate my very, very dodgy iPad sketches <laughs> into um, into uh, like little esquisses and drawings that we can present to our clients. When I was a bit younger and a, a graduate, then, you know, that used to be my job, but I think things change (laughs) as you get older. In fact, as architects progress further in their careers, the roles often become more managerial in nature. It's probably not for everyone. I mean, you do get a little bit shy the first few times because I think there's one thing presenting a report, but there's something else about presenting a design that you've done because a lot of it's so subjective and um, even though, you know, they teach you at university to sell your story and stuff like that, there's a lot of commerciality to it and trying to explain why you think that this will be fantastic, <laughs> just trust me, is a little bit harder. I mean, when you've got your beautiful design, you've got that first shot to really reel them in to, a, um, to the presentation. The people that you're presenting to, they're very busy. They have they have like 15 meetings a day and you've really got to win them over at that first point. But then obviously after that, they'll always have a lot of questions. But you almost have to do it there <laughs> and have an answer on the spot there in order to keep that energy running at that meeting. And I think that's actually why... Enscape's a pretty cool thing because it does live updates on the model, but it also means I have to have very talented staff (laughs) that can model it very quickly and show the clients as they're talking what that means for them. So we have, you know, we have kind of worked out a system, but I believe that it's, it's very true. I mean, if you don't get them excited about it early on, they start questioning why you're there. And I imagine that's a very tough thing to do in any role, let alone a creative one, is to kind of have to justify your existence. Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, architecture itself is 
as a job has slowly been diluted over the past, you know, two, three hundred years. And every section of our job is being cut off for other people. And then we have to prove that spending that extra money on an architect and not just a building designer is worthwhile for the client. And especially if it's a new client, that's a little bit harder than say someone who's trusted you for a very long time. But yeah, it's hard because it feels very personal as well. And I think any architecture student kind of would understand when you're doing that presentation in front of someone that when they give you a critique, it's a critique on the work, but it's not a critique on you personally. You said something there I'm really curious about, which is that architecture as a practice has been diluted over the last couple of centuries. Can you go a little deeper on that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look all the way back where like that architect was also basically like the god where they built like the pyramids and everything like that, whereas as things have progressed in terms of laws and responsibilities um, in in the in practice nowadays, they split off sections of it. So you don't have an you rarely have an architect engineer. They're two completely different jobs. Um, project management is a thing that exists now. So you know that part used to be um, a large segment of architectural practice where you would do um, contract management. And I think. That type of that type of contract management still exists on smaller projects, but larger projects now they have you know client side project managers and people to look after that job. So in the end, you become more and more specialized, and I think architects tend to try and sell themselves a lot in that they can do everything within architecture, and it's kind of scary to further specialize yourself within the industry when you're already slowly losing bits and pieces of it. But it'll be We'll have to see how that progresses in the next few years. (laughs) I couldn't tell you. (laughs) Staying with the kind of historical theme in terms of questions, I'm curious, I know that previous pandemics and events like that have kind of led to new architectural movements. You know, in thinking about the last year we've had in the COVID-19 pandemic, do you foresee any kind of new architectural changes or styles or things we might see more of? In my commercial work, we mostly do offices, <laughs> and uh, I think I think nowadays uh, there are slightly different um, requests when people when people are looking for offices now. Absolutely, yeah, because I think in the past, like a, like a fresh air intake, as in like having the ability to open your window, wouldn't have been as important. Like if you look at the skyscrapers in the city, most of the the mechanical systems do all that for you. But now clients are actually looking for that ability to have more control over their atmosphere. The other thing is like there's a lot of operational things that have to change. Just making sure that there's not too many people in the lift. So having lifts that are fast enough to get people through because you can only have you know four or five you know packing everyone in in like sardines anymore and then then other things such as having those those end of trip facilities so that people who are coming in via bike which is a lot more popular so they're a bit worried about catching the trains have somewhere to freshen up when they get into the office so a lot of the a lot of the offices are advertising you know good end of trip facilities but other small things that you can introduce that are more like control based which is like 
if you have a security door you don't have to touch the door to open it or if you're exiting the bathroom instead of having like a normal lever handle you might have a like a door sensor instead that you can wave your foot in front of it and that opens the door instead so stuff like that might become more popular but everyone kind of has to come on board it's always you know driven by commerciality because it costs a little bit more to do that and other tenants moving out of the city and into the suburbs where that's a little bit closer to home and and everything like that but i guess the other thing is after last year everyone started working from home because <laughs> they had to and before when you know all the offices had your space to come in and and you'd work there five days a week and you're looking at massive capacities of people like 100% full buildings and now the city's struggling to get people back into um, into the offices because you know after you're introduced to convenience <laughs> everyone kind of you know wants to keep that part of it in their lives so you might Nowadays, if you're designing an office for 100 people, maybe 50 people are in the office at one, at one time. So it, it might have to change the way people work in terms of you might not have fixed offices in there because you're not there all the time and, you know, they have to have seats. It's more of a hot desking thing, but it, that's interesting because hot desking wasn't, it was slowly becoming less popular in in offices as people wanted their own space to relax and sit down so you know it, it might be a bit of a like a whiplash situation where it comes back in because it's not commercially viable to have an office for a hundred when there's only ever 50 or 60 people in there at a time I know it's not so much your area of expertise, but I wonder if there's going to be a larger shift in residential architecture as well, where the home office is now more of a focus. Mm, I mean, like for myself, I had bought uh, an apartment. So our apartment was settled and then we were moving in at the beginning of March last year. And we were halfway through moving in two weeks later and then lockdown happened. Wow. And when we, when we purchased the apartment, we were... You know, it's like, you know, two bedrooms, two bathrooms, it's fine. We can we can go to work and you come home a bit relaxed. But we weren't really prepared to have two bedrooms and then to also two offices inside the space. Like the apartment was not made for that. Yeah. So, um, you know, everyone was <laughs> like my, my house was not prepared. And I think everyone got a lot more forgiving with, you know, terrible backgrounds to your Zoom meetings. But I, I think it might be going forward that working from home is a lot more prevalent in all industries that they might say when you're looking for a space, they'll always have a study nook or something that has a slightly professional background for you to sit in front and do your, and do your video calls. The classic bookshelf that we've seen become the background for everything. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. For much of the past century, architecture was under the spell of a famous doctrine. Form follows function had become modernity's ambitious manifesto and detrimental straitjacket, as it liberated architecture from the decorative, but condemned it to utilitarian rigor and restrained purpose. Of course, architecture is about function, but I want to remember a rewriting of this phrase by Bernard Chumi, and I want to propose a completely different quality. If form follows fiction, 
We could think of architecture and buildings as a space of stories. Stories of the people that live there, of the people that work in these buildings. And we could start to imagine the experiences our buildings create. I'd like to touch on one of your other kind of interests, which is kind of the relationship between architecture and your model building, and then also other artistic practices, things like narrative and theater. I think this is something you've actually taught a class on. Is that right? Mm. So um, a friend of mine and myself, I think we taught for three, four years, a Master's of Architecture studio, as well as a elective, which was a, a summer intensive, which... Um, we're not currently doing. We do get emails every year asking when we're going to do it again, but not at the moment. <laughs> but the but the idea being that you can use architecture to tell a story about the people who live in that space. This type of thinking is not something that you would use like commercially because you you tend to want to age the the design so that you can see the use of a building. That's a, that's a little bit different to how you would approach it if you're designing a brand new building. So what we, one of the, um, the last electives we did was we took the Harry Potter books and we asked the students to look at some characters within each of the books. And so we pulled out some excerpts and, and, and things like that and for them to design spaces kind of like set design if they were going to build a part using the model. So like, for example, one of the students did the burrow, which is, I think, where the Weasleys live, and then just using the very small one or two sentence descriptions that were given in the books and then the contextual stuff about the characters, um, it would be how they designed the space so that it would be um, matching to how the characters are explained. And I think it's a, it's a lot in set design as well. And you can tell a lot by how a building ages, like which uh, which handle is um, is grabbed more, like why are the taps scratched that certain way. And I think understanding how a person uses space also helps you later on when you're specifying and designing a space for someone to live in for a long time. Because if you look at staircases from old buildings, you can see how they're sunken in in the centre and it shows you where the most popular space to walk is. Or if you look at tapware for for married couples and it's always the left-hand tap is always all scratched up because of their rings. So um, if you understand that type of thing, you wouldn't specify like a very delicate powder coat for a house later on because you know that that will get damaged very quickly because of the rings on people's fingers. And I guess it's like that type of thinking and approaching to the storytelling of a space is very important to me. And also like in the model, in the models as well, in order to make something look realistic, you just don't age everything everywhere all at once. You would you would darken the space in front of the fridge because someone would be standing in front of the fridge for a long time working out what they're going to cook for dinner or you don't age the entire cupboard door because it's more likely that they'll grab the door handles or the lips around the around the cupboard instead of, you know, just in the centre because that type of ageing doesn't make sense. And understanding the use makes the design a lot more convincing when you're looking at it through pictures. 
One thing that sprang to my mind when you were speaking just then is, I know for a lot of actors, they're, you know, particularly when they do things like audition for drama schools, you'll get a monologue, which is from a film, like say, De Niro in Taxi Driver, and you're asked to do that monologue. But one of the things they really emphasize for young actors is like, don't play De Niro, interpret this character in your own way. Is that something you really run into with a project like this, where you've got architects who are thinking about these spaces from the textual like relic, which is the books, but then you also have this thing of, you know, these spaces have already had set designs. They've already been imagined for the Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like it's hard when the best version has already been done. Well, you know, it, they were very, very successful in terms of their set design in the films, but asking the students to just kind of step back and look at the analysis because sometimes their restriction in films is very different to our restriction yet building a model of it and obviously we've got other things as well because they might only in the in the movies they might only have to build like a front and a lot of it's cg and magic right um whereas we'd actually have to build a physical representation so we have a little um restrictions in other ways to that space but I never think it's a problem to look at how someone's done it before because, you know, it's like your your Pinterest board of inspirations and things like that. And you, you can take certain people's interpretation of a space, but how you colour it with your thoughts is what sets aside that student's work compared to how the professionals done it in the movies. And, I you know, some sometimes the students did like what I thought was a much better job than what was shown in the movies because they had just a different interpretation or they loved the character slightly differently to the person who had done the space. And, you know, that just adds a little bit more to the whole the whole thing. That's very, very cool. <laughs> Jeanette, I have one last question, then we'll let you go. But this is one that we ask all of our guests as our final sign-off. What's one thing that's not on your resume that's helped you get to where you are today? Mm, not on my resume would probably be my love of journaling. <laughs> and I have, I have another, I have another Instagram account that just shows pages from my journal. And that page I think is a lot more popular by multiples than any of my architecture work. Maybe it's because it's a little bit more accessible, but the ability to, put all your ideas down in a little book and then practice that sketching has helped me a lot in ways that you don't really learn to do at university. And I actually started it because when you draw for architecture, you don't actually practice drawing a certain way because you're always drawing like little details and plans and things like that. And you kind of lose the the happy like little whimsical sketching that you might have done as a kid so I wanted to re-practice drawing again so I started journaling and as part of it I just kind of took pictures of the spreads and posted them online after that it really helped with normal work because it helped me draw faster because I was setting those goals for myself. Um, it also helped me represent things easier because sometimes you th- imagine something in your mind and then you can't draw it on the page. So it actually helped with um, with everything. I mean, I just make sure that anything that looks a little bit too private, I just pixelate it all out. But people don't mind. They just want to see how the page is laid out. <laughs> Thank you.
That is awesome. Jeanette Lee, thank you so much for joining us on Game Changers. Yes, no, thank you for having me. When we're little, we often say we want to grow up and become doctors, lawyers, or architects. We spend those childhoods imagining what we'll be when we grow up. But it's a pastime that too many of us give up when we reach adulthood. If there's anything we can learn from Jeanette and our other game changers, it's that a little imagination goes a long way. Subscribe to Game Changers for new episodes or catch up at fbe.unimel.edu.au slash gamechangers. Game Changers is recorded on Wurundjeri land. The podcast is produced by me, Seth Robinson, and edited by Michelle Macklem, with support from the University of Melbourne.